but at its core, right, systems thinking is really, I think, about stepping back and looking at a problem as broad in the broadest context you possibly can. Everyone has a dream, and some people's dreams take them to extraordinary places. David Simon is one of those people. Tune in every quarter to learn how a 50-something lawyer from the U.S. navigates the ancient world of Oxford College in pursuit of an MBA. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox back again with David Simon for another episode of A Yank at Oxford. First of all, welcome. Excuse me, David. Welcome back. Thanks, Tom. Good to be with you. David, we're going to take things a little bit different direction today because I ask you if you could maybe talk about either a paper or a topic from your studies and maybe we could take a little bit deeper dive than we typically take rather than go through where you are and what the next steps are. And you have selected a paper entitled Personal Action Plan, How I Can Bring Systems Thinking into My Law Practice. And it focuses on systems thinking and systems leadership. So could I maybe start with asking, what have you studied that led you to this interest? Why this paper? and maybe explain what systems thinking is, and we can take a little bit deeper dive into it. Yeah, sounds good. So this comes out of one of the sort of more interesting courses as part of the program. It's called Global Opportunities and Threats Oxford. And so it's uh, it's actually was the first course we did where we combined two different modules. So our cohort with the cohort behind us together into one group. And the whole idea is to introduce us to these systems thinking and systems leadership concepts, which are, I think, cutting edge in the kind of the consulting consulting world right now in terms of trying to solve big, complex problems. And I think part of the theory behind the course is all the problems today are big, complex, messy problems. It was designed to provide us with a set of tools to help us think through using these concepts to think through and figure out solutions to really complicated problems. And it was a really interesting class. Our We had two components to it. One was the personal reflection that I shared with you that we can dig into more in terms of how it applies to law firms. But the other was a group project on food security was the broader topic. And we had a couple of different options in terms of what to analyze, but food security and nutrition and obesity in different populations, the relationship between agriculture and climate change and the complexity of some of those problems. Those were real case studies that we worked on as well. So it was a really interesting, interesting program and kind of a very different, different than your sort of core business curriculum, like accounting and finance and some of the stuff that we've talked about before. That's part of what, part of what attracted me to this program. So that's where this, that's the context that this comes out of. So what is systems thinking? And we definitely have to, we have to talk about we have practiced law over the years, how it has been very tactical, very focused, very different than systems thinking, and then go into maybe how we both see systems thinking as a new way to deliver legal services. Yeah. And I should both caveat and apologize to my professor in advance, because I'm going to give you the like David Simon version of systems thinking, which I suspect is highly simple, highly simplified and maybe wrong in some ways. So I hope this doesn't get posted until after our marks are entered in the course. But at its core, right, systems thinking is really, I think, about stepping back and looking at a problem 
as broad in the broadest context you possibly can. So rather than solve for a very specific aspect of the problem, systems thinking is asking you to take a step back, look at all the sort of people and stakeholders and institutions that sort of touch on the issue that you're working through and understand their interests, understand how they relate to each other and try to propose that one of the sort of buzzwords in this is intervention. So you're trying to propose intervention solutions that really can impact the problem. So it's sort of, we've talked about, you and I have both seen this in our compliance practices, right? Root cause analysis, or you have something that comes up that's a, a, an acute problem. There are a number of more complex causes for why that problem arose. That's really a core of systems. Thinking about a problem within all the constituents to that problem, what their interests are, and how you can pull levers to try to fix it in that broader context. I think that's at least that's the sort of the David Simon version of systems thinking. So when you were giving your definition on systems thinking, I had immediately gone to root cause analysis as well. But the thing I liked about systems thinking is it doesn't stop with a root cause analysis. It in many ways takes that information. I would say risk assessment to, con to risk management strategy, to monitoring the strategy in place to continuous improvement. However you say it, whether it's root cause analysis to remediation, to monitoring the remediation, you're looking at him with a much more holistic approach, which I think is something every corporation should be doing. Yeah. I, th I, suppose, I, think I suppose we could say, why aren't law firms doing this? But that's a different discussion maybe. But the thing about when you're hired whatever the matter might be, when I'm hired on whatever the matter might be, it's Tom or David solved this I'm bringing you in to solve this problem. This problem could be a litigation matter. It could be a regulatory matter. It could be, we need a new compliance program. We need an enhanced compliance program. And then thank you very much. We go our separate ways. But it struck me in reading your paper, David, that it, if you took this approach, you could deliver a service to a client, whether it be a corporation, whether it be a nonprofit, whether whatever the entity might, which would allow them to actually be more nimble and more flexible to respond to whatever the next black swan event is going to be. I was wondering if you could maybe, if you agree with that, expand on that from your perspective. Yeah, I do. And one of the things I was ref reflecting on when I was doing this paper is just that the nature of, and the history and tradition of kind of lawyers and how they interact with clients. And I think, just a, a couple examples you just gave one right like litigation right there's a client's gotten sued and they get, they have a summons and complaint that gets served on them let's say a supplier or a commercial dispute with a customer or a supplier right typical typical commercial litigation matter and the lawyer's given the given the task of solve this problem right get this lawsuit dismissed settle it get it out of my out of my hair or I just think about maybe an, maybe an M&A deal out of our space, but the lawyer gets called in saying, help us execute on this acquisition that we've proposed. And so we're very focused on that. And I think what are very small, defined, non-systemic problems, typically just given the nature of how our clients use us, right? Lawsuit example, you first instinct is to find some facts, do the research, maybe file a motion to dismiss, try to very linearly using the tools in your toolkit, solve that very specific problem. 
from the client's perspective, and if you take a step back and broaden your perspective on it, the problem may actually be, look, you've got a, you've got a, you're overly dependent on one supplier as part of your supply chain and you have no leverage and they have lots of leverage and therefore you're going to, this lawsuit can operate only within a certain narrow band of outcomes. So maybe the system solution is to be thinking more about your supply chain and can you diversify it and can alter the bargaining power of the entities in a way that prevents you from being held up in a litigation in the future by the supplier. I'm just making this up, but or with the M&A deal, right? It may be, okay, execute this deal, but the bigger problem might be, look, we've got, we need this acquisition. Is it, we need to buy this company because we are, our R and D pipeline is empty because we haven't been investing in R and D. And so we're desperately looking to fill that hole. And there are questions about why that is. And can't, when we address the broader problem of, we don't have a good pipeline of innovation, is this the right target to, to solve that problem? Those kinds of things, when you take a step back the real problem that our clients are facing is much broader than often what we're being asked to solve. And so one of the things I've just been thinking through is, okay, is, is there a role for lawyers to do that, to take that extra step, to expand the role and the definition of the problem beyond what we're asked to do by the client? Clearly, in my view, you can add a lot more value that way. I'm also cognizant though, of the fact that the, the client hires a lawyer for a particular reason. And I worry a little bit about the client sort of thinking this is their plumber giving them advice on child rearing, right? I didn't hire you to tell, to solve my supply chain from, I hired you to get the suit dismissed. There's obviously some tension there in terms of what clients really want and what you, where you can deliver value and whether you have the, the tools and the perspective to deliver that value. But to me, it's a no brainer that the solutions are almost always broader than what we are presented with as private practice lawyers representing clients. David, I think we've either identified a problem or market opportunity, but there's a second part to systems thinking that you've written about called systems leadership. And I have to say, I was really struck by that component of your paper because it seemed to me to give people like yourself in private practice in a law firm, people like myself, an external commentator or others the opportunity to bring some of these ideas in a coherent way that's a would be a certainly a business opportunity or a business solution and to start getting people to think about this in a way that I think they would be comfortable with hearing. So could you tell us a little bit about systems leadership and why you saw that as, or if you think it's such a powerful tool, because I do, why you think it's such a powerful tool? Yeah, I mean, it was really, it was a really interesting set of concepts for me. And just to try to, again, to define it and probably, I'm probably doing this pretty, I'm, maybe, I'm sure I'm not doing justice to the body of literature here because I did most of my reading for this class, but maybe not all of my reading for this class. I was a little bit busy in that month, but, but as I have interpreted it and internalized it, I think the concept of systems leadership is to really think outside role, outside your role and to be, to look at leadership, not as executing a position that you're given in a company or a law firm, but think about yourself as a, an influencer, as a, a connector, as a, can you have an impact based on ideas, your relationships, your ability to maybe see 
a system more broadly than someone else with a different set of experiences and backgrounds. And to bring that together to impact your firm, your profession more broadly, your practice, your clients, right? Can you be a leader in a, in a sense of not having a title and not having an official defined role? And it gets back to that last point of who asked you to, who asked you to do this? Nobody, but I can, and I can maybe add some value and I can maybe impact my world that I'm talking about here in a positive way, given my experiences. So that that's the way I think about it. And I think it's, it's really lawyers have an opportunity to do this in a way that I think is more open than it is maybe in the corporate world where we tend to generally be less structured in how we run our practices and how we run our firms. There's, there's a lot more sort of opportunity for someone just influence the direction of a firm through their ideas, through their communications, right? That's just that's inherent in a law firm. So it spoke to me, but especially at this stage of my career thinking, okay, well, I don't have, I don't hold the formal position of any kind in my law firm, but I do see opportunities to influence things in a positive way. So that that's the idea. And just one example that kind of jumped out at me that I thought that I've been very interested in lately is one of my colleagues, my, one of my classmates and I, in this, we were talking about how in Bangladesh, there was a, this is just a little bit of context for this, but in Bangladesh, there was a, a really bad like factory fire and lots of like workers killed. And it was a horrible disaster. And in response, the sort of industry apparel manufacturers, the industry got together and agreed on a set of standards and had a, a an industry-wide program where they were imposing certain standards on their manufacturers. And guess what? They got sued for colluding. And so like this classmate of mine, who's also a lawyer, and we were talking like, this is really an interesting issue. It's an interesting problem with some of the efforts in ESG and compliance and sanctions and forced labor, child labor. A lot of these feel like they could be industry-wide solutions, but I think there's probably some real reticence to for companies to cooperate to do that because they don't want to get sued they don't want to be accused of, of an antitrust or a competition law violation so we've been talking about this and we're working through a can we informally just launch a, a legal reform kind of program where we might start talking to people about this and see if we can't maybe write a paper maybe get the antitrust bar engaged and think about ways where we might be able to carve out some kind of ex ex exemption, exception to the antitrust laws to deal with these kinds of issues. And that's a long story. I'm sorry, but that, that just identifies a, an opportunity where nobody asked us to do this, it's not our job. It doesn't fit within our law firm responsibilities. It's not a class project, but it's a systems leadership approach where it's a problem identified where we're bringing to, to bear knowledge and expertise and relationships and connections. And maybe we can do something with it. Maybe we can do something good with it. So Knox will be, we'll be talking about this more if you're listening over dinner at the next module, but that's just. An Seems like a good place for us to pivot a little bit because I did want to visit with you about a really interesting trip you took and you've now written about it on LinkedIn. And it was a trip to Vietnam. Oh, I'm not quite sure how old you are, but Vietnam is something I just finished a study of the war. So it's front and center of my mind. But Vietnam is certainly a place that is, I find most interesting for Americans now. Number one, from what I perceive to be the welcoming, welcomingness, 
sorry about that, of the country, a little bit of the mystery of the country, but also its geopolitical situation. And geography-wise, it sits next to, and I know you have written and thought a lot about China over the past several years, but particularly in your Oxford experience. So I was wondering if we could maybe have some of your thoughts about Vietnam, what you saw, what you observed. Is Vietnam open for business? Should we consider it? And is it strategically, because of its geographic location, I find it to be a hugely strategic of strategic interest. I 100% agree. Just a little tiny bit of context. So this was another course as part of the program, and it's it was a business in emerging markets course. So we have our choice between, we could pick Vietnam, India, or Peru, as I've been to countless times. So I wanted to do something different. And I, I was, I've always been interested and fascinated with Vietnam. So we did that course and it was really interesting. We had a great week of lectures. Basically the structure was lectures in the morning about Vietnam, the economy, the political system. And then we'd have guest speakers come in and sometimes do site visits. So we spent some time at a law firm. We went to an accounting firm. We went to a real estate development. It was a really eye-opening and interesting program. One of the best of my programs so far. On the sort of broader topic of Vietnam, I 100% agree with everything you said. I think it is open for business. I think it's an incredibly important both source for U.S. companies who want to ex- who want to diversify their supply chain from China mostly is that I think the paradigm for that, because it is right next door. It's a very friendly environment to foreign direct investment and manufacturing and export. It's got a, a really strong, I was so impressed by the people, how they're on the move and they're going to succeed. I have no doubt in my mind, the level of commitment to development at all levels of society was really palpable and impressive. So there's this labor force. It's a cheap, currently labor is cheaper than it is in China, but also developing higher skill level manufacturing. I think the day we left, Apple announced that Foxconn was going to start Max in Vietnam. So they're they're moving up the value chain in manufacturing. And it's, a, it's an incredibly important market. So there's 100 million people in Vietnam. It's one of the biggest countries in East Asia. And there's an emerging middle class that's going to, that's buying stuff and is going to keep buying stuff. So I just think as a business opportunity, and I do think America's behind the curve, the Koreans and the Japanese are much more visibly present there. I think we've been a little slow and are missing some opportunities. So yeah, I think it's great. And I think it's, the people were amazing. As I said, the food was great, the energy, the vibe. I was there about 10 days and only in Ho Chi Minh City, Saigon. So I didn't get to see Hanoi, didn't get to see any of the countryside, which I understand is spectacular. So I can't wait to get back. So I have to bring up the subject of corruption and Vietnam. We had an enforcement action last year, which included Vietnam as one of the countries where corruption occurred. And then just this week, I believe the president of Vietnam either had to resign or did resign because of corruption allegations. Let me ask you to put your lawyer hat back on, not your Syed School of Business hat on. How would you help a company think through moving into an area that has great opportunity, but may be heightened in risk? How do you help a company think through a high-risk environment? Because high-risk simply means that. High-risk doesn't mean you can't do it. Agreed. You're right. This is an important issue. 
like my takeaway from what I learned, and I asked my colleagues probably found me annoying because I asked this question of most of our guest speakers about corruption. What is it like and what are you finding? Let's start with the proposition that it, I would say a higher risk market. I don't think it's at the extreme risk. When you look at like the Transparency International Corruption Pre Perception Index, it's not perfect, but it's not a basket case, almost impossible to do business there. So I think at the end of the day, like any emerging market, you have to go in with a, comp a corruption compliance strategy in mind. And it's a mistake, particularly in this is still an economy that is driven largely by a one party state. And it's a, there's a ton of private development. It's like China in that sense of you have to assume that you're dealing with the government in almost any arrangement and relationship you're involved in. My sense is corruption is a much bigger problem. The more local you get, if you want to open up a bar or a restaurant in Ho Chi Minh city, you're going to have some real struggle to sort through the approvals and the licenses and the connections and all that stuff. If you want to build a factory and invest, you know, tens of millions of US dollars in the country, I think it's a much sort of cleaner path. And I also think you correctly point out the the I think forced resignation of the president by the party. My sense is that the party understands that this is an obstacle to investment and that they need to clean it up. And I think there is a real effort to clean up corruption that that sort of remains. So I guess short answer is you've got to have a plan. You've got to have a strategy. There are some really good advisors you can use that are local who can help. As always, to, to me, in every emerging market, the core for overcoming corruption issues is to have your act together, right? To avoid creating opportunities for bribe solicitations by following the rules, understanding the rules and following the rules and don't put yourself in a situation where you find you know, your factories built on a, on land that isn't zoned for manufacturing or to wait till the last minute to seek an approval that's due without the proper paperwork and backup to get the permit you're looking for, right? Those are the kinds of things that I always hammer on my clients wherever they're doing business in emerging markets to, to get good advice, to do your homework, to be prepared and to avoid putting yourself in a situation where bribes can be solicited because you're vulnerable. So I think that's important in Vietnam. David, we've got just a few minutes before the end of this episode, but I was wondering if you might give us a little teaser of what you've got upcoming with you and your classmates over the next uh, several months to the end of your program. Yeah, so it's I'm starting to see the end, the light at the end of the tunnel or the end of the road. We only have, I only have five more modules. We end in September and I'm bittersweet about it. I feel good that I've gotten through more than more than half of the work at this point, but I'm now starting to get a little wistful about the opportunity coming to an end and the relationship, the visits and the relationship. So it's closer to the end than the beginning. I've got five more sessions, as I said, I'm going back in early February and I'm taking, it's mostly electives now. There are a couple still core courses, but it's a lot of electives. So I'm taking a private equity course and then I'm taking this a course in strategy and innovation, which is really interesting. I've been actually starting to do my reading to prepare, to prepare for class. And the readings are 
really interesting how innovation really happens, how innovation gets commercialized. This is this will be a good topic for one of our next sessions, Tom, because I think I think this one's going to be pretty interesting. Still rowing whenever I can. I don't know if we'll do it in January. It's awfully cold on the river in January. Still having our college dinners. We have a college dinner at one of the one of the colleges. I'm not sure which coming up. So all the cool Oxford stuff still happening. It it has not worn off on me at all. I still, every time I go, I'm like, I can't even believe I get to do this because it's just so awesome. So it's all great. It's all really great. I'm still envious and jealous. David, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but I wanted to thank you and uh, look forward to the next time we can get together. Talk to you next time. Thanks, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of A Yank in Oxford. I hope you will join us for another episode as we continue David's journey to getting a MBA from the Oxford Executive Education Program. A Yank in Oxford is a special production of the Compliance Podcast Network.